Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Between the politics and the election and the virus and the geopolitical tensions and the murder hornets and the wildfires and the church closings and the Uyghur genocide and the masks and the Suez Canal being blocked, you know, all the other things we've been through in this past year, I think the thing that finally knocked me off my rocker was the insurrection at the Capitol back in January. And maybe that's political, uh, too political for you today. It's still the truth, at least in my experience. I think I have enough trust in the trust bank with you as a congregation that I can open up like this. Um, as best as I can understand it, there were a number of bad actors in the crowd that was in the Capitol who had wicked designs on January 6th. And to see our halls of power taken over in this dark manner, you know, it really shook me. Even now, because of the region we live in, it's very... Uh, political out here, I hear people say things ironically like, well, maybe they had the right idea and maybe we could use a new revolution. What do you think? And well, what I think is that life is hard during this pandemic season without all that added obligation. And well, I just think I'm too tired to overthrow and recraft a new government right now. Um, but part of what the Bible tells us is that um, as stressful as this season has been, others have had it worse. And that doesn't make my struggle go away, but it does take the edge off of it for me to know that people like me have been through this sort of thing before. And looking back into the world of Palm Sunday in the year 33 AD, um, there's a lot going on in this scene from Matthew that is overtly political in thought and speech. And just because of the passage of time, we may not know exactly what that looks like. Um, and so today I want to focus on our Palm Sunday reading. Uh, this Palm Sunday, Centuries in the Future, I want to look at the political winds of what was going on in Jesus' day. And I want to talk about Jesus' response and how he understood the political things in his own time. And I think what we'll find is that Jesus had some offensive and off-putting things to say about the political scene of his day. And I also think there will be some things that Jesus says which are off-putting about the political scene and the political um, rhetoric of our own time as well. And so let me introduce you and tell you a little bit uh, for the first part of my sermon here about the political winds that are blowing at the time of Palm Sunday. And really what, it, what we're going to talk about starts a pattern. It's a pattern that starts about 700 years prior to Palm Sunday. Because for about 700 years, give or take a couple hundred towards the end there, Israel is wrestling with what it meant to be a, the people of God when they weren't a free people. For a long time, God's people, they weren't living under their own king, but under the rule of a pagan king. They existed like a state or a vassal state ruled by another empire. And a lot of this came to a head in the th around 350 BC when Alexander the Great was spreading the Greek empire all over the world. Um, because he was generally fine with people keeping their own gods, but he brought Greek culture with him. He brought the Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek uh, religion, Greek fashion. And historians call this Hellenization 
because Alexander didn't necessarily force you to change your religion or culture, but he made his culture look powerful and mighty and cool and sophisticated by comparison. And so um, the sort of biggest political wind that has continued to blow in Israel for hundreds of years by Palm Sunday is what to do about this overarching international movement of a Greek cultural um, appreciation. What do we do about this new Greek overlord? And some Jewish people, they really took to it. They said, hey, there's some really good things about Greek culture and we could maybe learn a thing for two in the, uh, from them. You know, in prepping from for the sermon, uh, I actually discovered that we have historical records of a Greek gymnasium being built in Jerusalem during the Hellenist period, with this time frame, right? And a Greek gymnasium, it's not like our gyms, a little bit like our gyms, but a Greek gymnasium was a man-only place to get in shape and stay in shape because the Greeks thought that a fit body and athletic prowess was a way to honor the pagan Greek gods. You can see very clearly, I do not honor pagan Greek gods, but they did. <laughs> and so when this, this pseudo-pagan institution, the gymnasium, opened in Jerusalem, not only did the high priest of the temple come to the ribbon-cutting ceremony and bless it in God's name, um, but some of the priests of the temple, they got gym memberships. And so they would do their temple duties during the day, and then after work, they would go to the gym, and they would strip down naked because everyone worked out naked in the ancient world of the gym, and then they would get oiled up, and they would do a workout of Greco-Roman wrestling together, right? Um, your pastor goes to the gym, and he does lift some weights, but he does not oil up in Greco-Roman wrestle, just FYI. <laughs> and so you see some members of the Jewish community, they really liked Hellenism, uh, they went so far as to translate the books of Moses into Greek so that they could share it with the world. They tended to be a little more educated, a little more of the higher class in urban areas like Jerusalem and Antioch. And after a, after a while, the hoity-toity class uh, came up for a name for themselves. They said, um, there's a high priest named Zadok who really liked Hellenistic thought. And so they said, we're going to, we're kind of like that guy. We're the Zadokses. <laughs> Uh, we're the people who like and sort of affirm and try to work with Hellenistic culture. And by the time the word Zadoxes gets translated into English, we know them to be the Sadducees. Um, the, this was a group that embraced a multicultural flair and they joined the gymnasiums and then they sought out to partner with the culture around them. That's what the Sadducees looked like. And that was one political wind uh, blowing in Israel. And so while the Sadducees were all about sort of Greek ideas and how they could integrate the Hellenist culture into Jewish life, others were really skeptical of it because they went through the law of Moses and they looked at the values of Greek culture and they said, look, we don't see a lot of overlap here. And these people tended to be more rural and disconnected from the big cities. They were small town folks um, and uh, their life revolved less around the temple, more around their local synagogue. And so during this same time, while the Sadducees were being formed, another group called themselves the Separated Ones. And they started to, to push back against Hellenism and say, look, we don't need this foreign culture coming in. We're good with what we have. And uh, the Hebrew word for the Separated Ones is the word perishim, which by the time it gets to English is translated Pharisees. So the Pharisees, you see, they sought to push back against Hellenism and say, look, we can't compromise our faith with these foreign beliefs and customs and naked wrestling gyms. This is not, <laughs> this is not uh, compatible with God's law or Jewish culture as we know it. 
Now, all of this came to a head um, when the, when an emperor of the Seleucid Empire named Antiochus Epiphanes took over Jerusalem in the year 168 BC. You see, his, his empire conquered Jerusalem uh, before that, and it was a long and difficult siege. And so Antiochus Epiphanes really did not like the Jewish people because they made him fight for Jerusalem. And so he's decided that he wanted to eliminate the culture of the people of Israel from the face of the world. And so he said, look, for you guys living in, in Jerusalem, I, I've got no patience within, with you now. You're all Greek, and we're going to make you Greek. We're going to get rid of Hebrew. Everyone's going to learn Greek. Um, we're going to take your temple and convert it to a from a temple to your God to a temple to Zeus. All the priests must bow down to idols or be killed. Possession of the Torah will be met with capital punishment. And now everyone has to work on the Sabbath. <laughs> And to prove this point about uh, how we are no longer allowing the Jewish culture to exist, uh, Mr. Not-So-Nice Greek Emperor of the Seleucid Empire took a non-kosher animal, a pig, into the temple and slaughtered it there as a sacrifice to the pagan god. And so this got uh, just about every Hebrew person in the world riled up and, and there was a revolt. Um, and so even though he conquered the city, now he had to deal with a revolt. And the guy who led the revolt was named Judas, and they gave him a very swanky nickname in the revolt. They called him Judas Maccabeus, which meant Judas the Hammer. What a cool nickname. Y'all should call me Pastor Brian the Hammer. No, you don't have to do that. Maybe you should. And you see, the Maccabean revolt was was a guerrilla revolt, and eventually they, they won. They kicked out the Seleucid Emperor, Empire, and they established this Pharisee way of life as the culturally dominant way of thinking. And so the Pharisees, as it were, became this dominant way of thinking in Israel. And so when Judas brought this revolution into Jerusalem, as he kicked out the Seleucid Empire, he was welcomed by masses and cheers and shouts. And people, you see, they started to throw their cloaks on the ground so that he could ride over them and enter the city as a conquering hero. And then they started to grab palm fronds from the local palm trees and wave them around as he entered the city triumphally. So he went into the temple, he cleansed it and rededicated it uh, to God after the pagan emperor sacrificed a pig in it. And so for the first time in a very long time, around the year 168, the people of Judah and Jerusalem were free to govern themselves. And they did so for about 100 years until the Romans conquered them in 63 BC. And so these were the, the, the political trends that were going back for generations, for hundreds of years, that were very much defining the Palm Sunday experience, the first Palm Sunday, on that first Palm Sunday, right? Um, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, that whole region is a powder keg ready to explode because they're itching for the next Maccabee to come forward and free them from the Romans. They're chafing against this the, the demands from the Roman Empire to be less Jewish and be more Greco-Roman. And, and there are some Sadducees you see clamoring in the background for peaceful diplomatic solutions, trying to figure out how the, the people of Israel and the Roman Empire can coexist and just get along. But there are also some Pharisees who are carrying short swords in their sleeves, uh, wandering the streets at night looking for lonely, uh, unaccompanied Romans to assassinate. People are wondering, when will the next revolt again begin? People are wondering, who will free us from Roman rule like they, we were freed from the Seleucids? And Jesus enters Jerusalem on this time, in this time. 
Jesus is a popular political leader from the countryside, from the region of Galilee. He is on his way to Jerusalem to make his Passover sacrifice at the temple. And at this time, the city is packed with pilgrims from across the religious world. Uh, people are coming to the Passover feast. The, the, the population of the city has doubled or tripled. And words of insurrection are on people's lips. Who would deliver us? Maybe Jesus would deliver us from our Roman oppressors. Would this be the next religious leader to kick off a revolt and free us from the um, terrible and cruel oppression of our captor uh, empire? People are probing Jesus even before he comes into the city, asking questions like, Hey, Jesus, what taxes do you pay? And what do you think of this current political issue? And at one point earlier on in his ministry, after Jesus feeds 5,000 people, um, the crowd says, Hey, where's Jesus? If he can feed us all like this, uh, we should make him king right now. Let's go make him king. But they go to find Jesus and make him their king, but they can't find him because he's run away. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And a lot of people hearing that he's coming to Jerusalem want to greet him like Judas the Hammer, Maccabeus, with uh, cheers and shouts as they break off the palm fronds and wave them around. He is a triumphant revolutionary leader in their eyes. But others are in panic and in terror, knowing that the Romans are very much in charge and fearing a bloody insurrection. The whole city of Jerusalem is stirred up as Jesus comes into his city. But as Jesus enters Jerusalem, where does he go? He doesn't go to the Roman barracks to kick out the centurions. He doesn't go to the governor's palace to kick out Pontius Pilate. He doesn't go to the king's quarters to kick out Herod, the loathed puppet king nobody likes because he's in the pocket of, the, of the, the Roman Empire. Instead, the text tells us that Jesus goes to the temple, to the heart of Jewish life and worship. And so while everyone was focused on the political problems of the day, nobody was interested in reforming the spiritual life of the people, right? Uh, what's happened in our reading is, is the temple, the center of Jewish identity and life, had become filled with scam artists and extortioners taking advantage of all the religious pilgrims there for the festival. Money changers would charge religious pilgrims an exorbitant amount of money so they could have the right currency to give alms at the temple and pay taxes at the temple. Salesmen had set up shop and they were charging and overcharging prices up for religious pilgrims who couldn't bring their own animals to sacrifice for the atonement of their sins. The Passover festival, friends, was a religious obligation that had been taken over by cheats and crooks who looked at the crowds coming to show their love and devotion to God and had dollar signs in their eyes. It was so bad that they even had uh, figured out how to sh set up shop in the temple itself. And nobody saw a problem with this. Nobody anyway except for Jesus. So make no mistake, friends, in our reading today, Jesus is absolutely trying to start an insurrection. He wants to overthrow the establishment. He wants to build something new. Jesus wants to end the corruption, and he wants to restore the former glory to his people. He wants to make Jerusalem great again. Jesus wants to build back better people. Um, but the, the target of his wrath and his ire is not the, the Romans, the politicians, or the occupying army. His target is not political at all. His target is spiritual. And what strikes me now in the year 2021, in a way that's never hit me before, whether you look at it in art or read it in the text, is that when Jesus tries to incite a resurrection against the abuse of religious powers of his day, 
when Jesus tries to incite a rebellion against the spiritual toxicity of the temple, when Jesus tries to overthrow the stranglehold that money and privilege and prestige and power have on the center of Jewish faith, nobody helps him. As Jesus overturns the tables and takes a whip to a bunch of skeezy con artists making money off of religious pilgrims in the heart of the place where God says everyone is welcome, when Jesus does his insurrection and cleanses the temple, he does it alone. The disciples, they don't help. The crowd that followed him into the city cheering, they don't help. The Pharisees, they don't help. The Sadducees, they don't help. Jesus is a one-man insurrection against the spiritual sickness of his area, era, and nobody follows him into the breach. And what the crowds wanted from Jesus, you see, was a political answer to national ills. They wanted the hammer. They wanted their political beliefs affirmed and blessed. But Jesus says on Palm Sunday that there are things we should focus on instead, things that are truly wrong and causing real suffering, and those things are not political but spiritual. The political matters of the day, Jesus says, take up so much of our time and effort and energy, but they are not of ultimate significance. In fact, they're not even of of secondary penultimate significance either. Um, Jesus knows this, and, and we should know it, but we forget that the only thing of any substance that actually matters in our lives is our relationship with the creator God of the universe. And Jesus knows that political matters cannot restore our relationship with God. So what happens to this son of man, this one son insurrection against the spiritual ills of his age? Well, all of the principal actors in the story today, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, the crowds, They all partnered together in a twisted political alliance to have Jesus falsely convicted and crucified for his attempted spiritual coup. They couldn't agree on anything else. The use of the Greek language, interpretations of the Torah, they couldn't agree on whether naked wrestling was okay. But if Jesus' insurrection had succeeded, if Jesus can reform the hearts and minds and souls of those in Jerusalem on Passover, all of a sudden, people may not care so much about pagan politics or the scourge of Hellenism or the threat of war. The Pharisees and Sadducees may have been mortal enemies, but they drew their sustaining existence on the political passions of those in their ranks. And if someone comes along and says, hey, the politics aren't as important as the spiritual, where the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. Spoiler alert. The Sunday after the Passover, or the Sunday after the cleansing of the temple, um, that was where the real headache for the Pharisees and Sadducees began. And uh, it's the real headache for all parties hitherto mentioned. But we won't jump ahead that far. And so if we're going to be followers of Jesus, friends, we must take up a very unpopular opinion in the year 2021. We too must affirm the idea that politics is nothing compared to the spiritual matters in our world. We must reject the idea that politics is of primary and absolute importance. What might Jesus's insurrection of the heart look like in our own time? I've seen what it doesn't look like, certainly. A belligerent, face-painted shaman figure with a horned headdress and a shirtless body covered in, you know, Norse pagan tattoos, thanking Jesus with his megaphone for access to the U.S. Senate chamber. I don't think that's what it looks like. But I think Jesus' insurrection of the heart um, was successful in the wife of one very prominent politician from the recent past. 
And I want to tell you about that right now, in fact. This is a story I tell you secondhand. Um, my friend was on staff at a church in Houston, Texas called St. Martin's, and it's the largest Episcopal church in the United States. There's like 9,000 people on its roll. And on its church roll until very recently were the late president, George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr., who was elected in 1988, and his wife, Barbara Bush. And you'll remember that in 1992, President Bush lost his re-election campaign to Bill Clinton, and he returned home after his first term as president. And so you know that in Anglican and Episcopal traditions like ours, we take St. Paul's admonition to pray for our political leaders very seriously. Um, we pray for our executive officers every Sunday. And we've prayed for Presidents Obama and Trump. Right now we're praying for Joseph, our president, and Tom, our governor. And that's not hard for us at Epiphany. We don't have any former presidents in our congregation who are going to get upset or, you know, perhaps mildly um, irritated at us. But the rector of St. Martin's in Houston, though, um, the Sunday after Bill Clinton was inaugurated as president, the former President Bush and former First Lady Barbara Bush returned to their pews at St. Martin's. And so when the rector got up to lead the prayers of the people, he thought he might do the former president a courtesy. Instead of praying, as the prayer book says, for Will or Bill, or, or, for Bill or William, our president, during the prayers of the people, he simply said, and we pray for our president and our governor. Um, he purposefully left out the name of the president he was praying for. And who should make a beeline straight toward him after the service? It was not George, he was perhaps too magnanimous to meddle in this matter, but his wife, Barbara, which at the end of the day, I think is more scary. <laughs> so she cut this poor Episcopal priest a new one, and she said, listen, you have faithfully prayed for my husband and I for the last four years, and we needed it because being president is the hardest job in the world. Bill and Hillary now need your prayers as much as anyone else. You will be praying for Bill by name for every future Sunday here on out. Do I make myself clear? Indeed, she made herself very clear. And of course, the church played for, prayed for uh, Bill, their president, or William, their president, from that Sunday onward. You see, neither Barbara nor her husband George are still with us. But there's plenty of evidence that they were overtaken uh, by an insurrection of the heart. Um, that, that they, even though their lives and their careers uh, all revolved around politics, it was not the thing of primary importance in their lives. They had fallen to the insurrection of the heart that Jesus Christ started 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday. And they were better off for it, frankly. And the insurrection of the heart is, of course, a spiritual matter, but that does not mean it does not have practical consequences. As one historian wrote regarding the Christian conversion of the Roman Emperor, Emperor Constantine, uh, the Roman Empire was conquered by Christianity without spilling a single drop of blood except for its own. Uh, meaning that it was through the, the sort of non-rebellious martyrdom of this and the assistance to the plague victims, the selfless acts of love that were heretofore unseen and unknown in the Roman Empire that eventually caused the people to go through a popular uprising and to ditch the Hellenistic way of life and embrace instead the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's quite the insurrection at the end of the day, isn't it? And that insurrection, friends, finds its ultimate conclusion in Holy Week. The people wanted a king, and Jesus wears for them a crown of thorns. 
And the people wanted food and drink, and Jesus give, gave them his body and blood. The people wanted justice and freedom from Rome, but as Jesus hung on the cross, he offers forgiveness to those who mock him instead. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Which is, of course, the great insurrection of the heart, to be loved outside of a framework of earning or deserving. Jesus Christ forgives you when you believe that politics is everything. When Jesus Christ loves you when you were so outraged at that segment on Fox News or that article you read on Slate and got angry at your neighbor and hated them instead of loving them as you were commanded. Jesus Christ blesses you when you curse members of the other political party. Jesus Christ drives the money changers from your heart when you're thinking that somebody else needs to hear this sermon when really the message is for you as well. And so... I invite you today, friends, to, to open up your hearts to a divine insurrection this Holy Week. Um, because the people who change the world for the better are the people who understand that love is unmerited. Um, the people who uh, change the world are the people who suffer for people who don't deserve it. People who believe that God's love comes with no condition. Proclaim that message to people you like and proclaim it to people you don't like. And join Jesus' spiritual revolution instead, for it will go much farther and be of infinitely more potent of a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.